Reading from John 3, 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you will hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from nor where it goes. So it is with everyone who is, with, who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, Yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except for the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the man, the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Grace and peace to you from God our Creator, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit, the one who is present right here in our midst or wherever you are. So when I was in my first year of being a pastor, I got taken away on a trip to Honduras, uh, a mission trip. And we got settled into this little camp that we were staying at, and we got warned the very first night about these deadly green snakes to beware of. So we all duly paid attention to that. We went to bed and we had a very early wake-up call. And so I woke up early and I wanted coffee. And so I walked from the cabin into the place where they were serving coffee. And when I walked in the door, um, probably five or six of the men that were in our trip, who had stayed in a different cabin from us, were standing there watching me walk in the door. And, I, and they just were like staring at me. And I, I, I said, where's the coffee? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. And so I went and got my coffee, and they're just watching me. And I said, why are you guys all staring at me? I don't understand what's going on. And they said, didn't you see the snake? I, I said, no, I did not see a snake. I walked from the cabin to here. It was like, you know, half a block. It was very close. And they all just sort of looked at me and kind of like, couldn't believe that I hadn't seen this snake. So they took me back out there, and they said, okay, the night before, 
one of the guardsmen had seen one, killed it. So the men thought it would be really funny to lay it right in front of the women's cabin so that when we walked out the door, we would be startled by it. And I think they were wholly disappointed that their new pastor was not startled by it. I didn't even see it. I just walked right by it. So I thought, oh no, what if a live one comes by? Now, that's a story to get you to sort of consider this idea of how does something get from your eyes into your consciousness, your head, and then maybe into your heart, your emotion or your reaction. And maybe it's a deadly snake is not a great example, (laughs) but just the things we see from day to day or the, the things we encounter as we move about in the world. How does something move from a seen or lived experience into our head or thought process, what does this mean, into our hearts or our emotion center? This means something really important to me. How, how do we move through that process? I mean, sometimes it's instantaneous, right? That's what our reactions are for. We touch something hot and we know exactly what that meant. But sometimes it takes more time. Like, perhaps all of these different things we have experienced in the last year. I mean, the pandemic. Do you remember kind of processing that? Seeing it on the news? Seeing the information about it? going, oh, this is important. I should be learning about this. I should be understanding this. And then having it go to your heart center of like, people are dying. This is impacting how we move about in the world. This maybe has impact on my future in this world. So in in different ways, it takes a different, different amounts of times for things to move through that process for us. Now, like I said at the beginning, I intended to just have a sermon all about Trinity Sunday, although Glenn sent me an email on Friday saying, Trinity Sunday is hard, good luck with that. (laughs) So I thought, I I, I started to veer more toward the questions. And as I'm looking at this text, question, 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 question. There's five questions in there. Um, Three of them are from Nicodemus, and two of them are from Jesus. We have this example in here of Jesus answering a question with a question in this. So in this text, there's lots to process, and lots of Jesus' answers have these, like, sort of swimming responses that we go, I don't really even know what that means. But I think as we attempt to take our faith experience from eyes to head to heart, we need to pay attention to these questions like this. And this is what Nicodemus is doing. I mean, he has seen with his eyes that Jesus is doing things out in the world, performing miracles. I mean, he states that. We've seen what you have done. And now he's going, I want to understand that in my head. I want to know why and how. And so that's why he comes with all these questions. He's trying to make intellectual sense and connecting it with what he knows as a Pharisee, as as one who knows the law. And he's wondering if this Jesus is the one who now is going to take hold of his heart and not just his mind in a new way. And he's also wondering if this is going to be acceptable to the other Pharisees and to the religious leaders. And so Nicodemus goes to Jesus by night because he's not quite so sure he wants other people knowing what he's up to. And he has this exchange of questions. Now, this, this questioning thing is not new with Jesus. I, I don't know if you know this, but in the four Gospels, Jesus asks 
307 different questions. 307 different questions. And people ask questions of Jesus 183 times. 183 times. Now, how many of those 183 questions do you think Jesus directly answers? Some say as low as three. Some scholars kind of different on this. On this. Some say as low as three. And others say as many as eight. <laughs> that he answers directly. So either way, it's a relatively small number. And even if Jesus um, answered eight, that means he is... 40 times more likely to ask a question than to give a direct answer. Now, questions were a teaching tool for the the, um, rabbis. They used questions all of their time in the way that they taught, answering a question with a question. So it's not that unusual. They were always engaging in back and forth conversations, testing the edges of an idea and spending time wondering about something rather than um, finding definitive answers. So um, we ought to pick up in this very sort of philosophical conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, that this is kind of the way that they are practicing um, finding meaning. Like a verse, like, uh, 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 one like verse 8 where Jesus says, the wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from. This is, this is sort of that practice of sort of wondering and thinking and digging a little bit. He says, so it is with the Spirit. And so we have this new idea of the Spirit. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but we know that it's moving in this place for this time. And so the wind is a good one, just just like the wind that we cannot pin down and say exactly what it is. We cannot put a pin in our faith and come to this conclusive resolution or standard of measurement. Now, this might be difficult for us because we are used to clear and linear thinking, right? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me what this means and then I will live that out. Help me to understand this complicated thought, and I will believe it. Now, how many of you are familiar with Google? (laughs) Okay, not a tough question, right? How often do you use it? Daily? Daily, probably, right? We wonder about something. Anybody have this where you go, I wonder about this, And before you could even just pause on that wonder, somebody pulls out their phone and goes, oh, here's the answer, right? I mean, this just happened in my family last night. We were wondering about something, and my niece, who's seven, she made a declarative statement about it. This is what happened. And we all went, I don't know if that's right. And somebody else got out the phone and said, yeah, she was right about that. I love Google, but it also has sort of taken away our ability to wonder right? To just process and to think about something. And so as we think about this rabbinical tradition of questioning and wondering, I like this quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He says, it's one of the most striking features of biblical Hebrew, that though the Torah is full of commands, 613 of them, there is no biblical word that means obey. Instead, the Torah uses the word Shema, 
which means to hear, to listen, to reflect on, to internalize, to respond. He says God does not want blind obedience, but understanding response. God does not want blind obedience, but understanding response. And so here in John chapter 3, we bring that tool to this conversation that we're have, that, that's been having here. This is the kind of understanding that is not often found by knowledge or doctrine, but it is found by faith, by digging in. If religious tradition were enough, Nicodemus, as a representative of Israel's religious leaders, he should have all that he needs. But he is baffled, right? He is unable to enter into this new life through his intellect. He wants to know more in his head and in his heart. So back to that question for us and for our own lives of faith. How does our faith evolve? And I use the word evolve pretty intentionally. How does our faith evolve from blind obedience to meaningful understanding? And I think it happens in conversation. I tried to like tease a little bit of that out of you in story time, this back and forth that we can have. We saw the back and forth between Nicodemus and Jesus, but we have this too all the time. And we know when we get into one of those conversations where we're learning something new, we're going deeper into conversation. Like maybe the teacher or the counselor who knows just the right question to ask you to get at a better understanding of you. Or maybe you have a confidant who will listen to you ask odd questions or questions that you know don't have a meaning, but they listen without judgment. Or like a good friend who might challenge you with a question. Maybe you're going off on a rant and the friend has the the right question to challenge you. Or like the deeply meaningful conversations we have with the people who know us best where we can be truly ourselves and know that we are loved. This is the way our faith evolved, through revelation, understanding, possibility, openness, and faith. They happen in conversation. And so I think this is a good connection for us to Trinity Sunday. The Trinity is this concept, theological idea that we have God, God our creator, Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit. And somehow they are one, but they are three different. And I like to think of it in this same way, that it is God in conversation. Oftentimes, it is referred to in the plural, in the creation story. It says that uh, we were created, and um, God created in in God's image, and it's, it's a plural. Even in the story we have before us today, Jesus says, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. And he's somehow referring to himself and to God and to the Spirit. There is this plurality in the Trinity. The Trinity is interconnected. It is a a relationship. It is God's presence among us in community. So as we grow in our faith, we grow in faith by knowing a God of community. God who enters our lives in these different ways. So as we 
think about that trinity, that idea of being in conversation and the story of Nicodemus, we are, are challenged to move from theory to practice, from knowledge to faith, from curiosity to commitment. I think it's important to know that over the course of a life of faith, one can change one's mind and ask questions. You can believe something your whole life long, and then when presented with a new conversation, or a new idea, or a new relationship, you reconsider, you are open to that. And we have this in the whole life of Nicodemus. He begins here in the beginning of John with all of his questions. He's a rabbi through and through, he knows the law. But he goes with these questions. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Nicodemus appears a couple of more times in this book of John. In John chapter 7, Nicodemus is there when the, the other uh, religious leaders are calling for Jesus' arrest. And Nicodemus stands up and defends. He says, you can't do that. I mean, he, from this intellectual place, puts kind of his uh, faith on the line and says, no. He defends Jesus in a tricky situation. And then at the end of, of the book of John, in John chapter 19, Nicodemus appears again. And here he is after Jesus has died with costly uh, perfume. A perfume more costly than even the woman who, who pours the perfume out on Jesus' feet. I mean, it is a, a high expense, and he pours that out to Jesus in worship. I think in these three stories of Nicodemus, we see this faith experience going from a seen experience to an intellectual pursuit to a heart of worship of this Jesus of ours. Now, I wonder where you find yourselves moving in that way, where you enter into those conversations that are, are deep and meaningful and just uh, develop your faith in a new way. I remember one time I was uh, finishing college and I was on a walk with my sister and she just said to me, why do you believe in Jesus? I don't think she was saying she didn't. She just wanted to know why I did. And no one had ever asked me a question like that before. And I started to tell her the reasons why. And it wasn't anything I had thought about before. And so in the telling, I sort of walked myself into a heart place with Jesus. I have another group of friends that when we get together, I have often said after the conversation that I felt like I was praying. It's, it's the only group I've ever been with where I, it's like that. Just in our conversation back and forth across the table, when I walk away, I feel like I was just praying. And I don't know for sure why. Is it the questions they answer? Is it the way they lean in to listen to what each other has to say? Is it the care and compassion around that table? And I think these are the places we need to go and find ourselves as a faith community. Leaning in to the conversations, the questions, the faith that leads us to a deeper understanding. I want to just share with you uh, uh, the ending of one of uh, uh, my favorite books uh, called Faith Unraveled by Rachel Held Evans. Uh, she's a theologian who went from a very evangelical tradition uh, to a new understanding of her faith. And she says this, those who say that having a childlike faith means not asking questions haven't met too many children. Anyone who has kids or love, loves kids or who has spent time, uh, more than five minutes with kids, knows that they ask a lot of questions. 
Rarely are they satisfied with short answers, and rarely do they spend much time absorbing your response before moving on to the next why or how come. Psychologists say that the best way to handle children in this stage of development is not to answer their questions directly, but instead to tell them stories. As a pediatrician, Alan Green explains, after conversing with thousands of children, I've decided that what they really mean is, that's interesting. Let's talk about that together. Tell me more, please. Questions are a child's way of expressing love and trust. They are a child's way of starting dialogue. They are a child's way of saying, I want to have a conversation with you. So, dear children of God, as you explore your questions and your faith, be in conversation. Tell the stories of your life that bring deep meaning to you and maybe open your heart up to someone new. And as you do so, know that the God of story, the God of our faith, longs to be in this relationship with you. Thanks be to God. Amen.